We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one word. What is the other word? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's gonna be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that, but of course I couldn't possibly comment. Bertie Helens agreed. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound Unsights TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Not so bad. So it's uh, it's been a long week. L- lots of TV, but not so much that... Uh, that we're particularly bowled over by. No, we, we, I mean, we were, we were slightly scattered this week. So there's some stuff that we usually cover that we're not doing. And also we have a long shelf. So it's sort of convenient that we're slimming down a bit this week. Yeah. The, I've been out of town. So uh, there's a bunch of shows that I have not been able to to catch up with uh, yet this week. So hopefully we'll get a little chance to talk about them next week. But that also means that none of my reviews are up yet. Including last week's Treme, this week's Treme, this week's Vampire Diaries, this week's Fringe. They will be coming by the end of the week, but uh, yes, I had less internet access than I expected this weekend. My my Homeland review is also late, but it should be up uh, right after we record. So, th- by the time you hear this, you can go see what uh, Simon had to say about Homeland. Uh, we got a few messages from you guys this week. We heard from Dan and Keith at the website. Dan uh, talked about Amazing Race and uh, the teams and how that's going this this season, as well as Harsh Realm, which is a show that I had I, I had forgotten existed. So, thank you for the reminder, Dan. And then we also heard from Keith, who um, said that he's thinking Nashville needs to move a little faster. He's liking it, but it's kind of at trudging pace at this moment and actually we agree and so we're going to skip talking about this week because there's not that much to talk about yes yeah you know it's scandal stealing yeah connie britain's amazing you know we like what they're doing but they need to get back to the goodness yeah i i i now i now daydream about what every other show would do if it were homeland and like on nashville they're already divorced and one of them's dead (laughs) the whole thing yeah pretty much uh we wouldn't be spotlighting the walking dead if we didn't have a separate Walking Dead podcast that should be up by the time you hear this. Um, so that will be coming as well, but uh, but we're uh, skipping the spotlight this week. At the end of the show, we will be talking with Michael Ryan from the Masterpiece Cinema podcast about Pushing Daisies, which was so much fun. Uh, if you could think of a show that's just like everything that I love, it would pretty much be Pushing Daisies. So I had a lot of fun with that. Um, but before we before we get into our week in TV, let's talk a little bit about what's going on at uh, Sound on Sight. Last month was horror-themed. What's the what's the theme this month? Uh, well, it's Bond month, so uh, we're, in theory, reviewing every Bond film in order, chronological order, um, except that we already have Skyfall reviews because that's how we roll. So, yeah, I... Yeah, we've got a bunch of different writers covering that. I, I for some reason, decided to be uh, really contrarian and do Quantum of Solace to see to, to go back and see why everyone hates it so much. Mm-hmm. So 
and why it necessitated a franchise reboot, but that's not going to be for a couple weeks. Okay, so that that's something to look forward to. I look forward to, to, to following that at the website. I'm not writing any reviews, but I have, uh, mostly because I have a fond memory of watching, like going through the library when I was a kid and watching all the Bond movies uh, and loving all the gadgets, and I've I, I just I know that if I rewatch some of those older ones, I'm just gonna only see all the incredibly misogynistic stuff, and right, yeah. and and have the wonder of a helicopter in a briefcase taken away from me. So, uh, I look forward to to seeing what you guys have to say about all those. Um, but we should uh, let's get into our week in TV, and we're gonna start with the Tuesday comedies. Like last week, we're gonna group all these in into sort of one chunk. But uh, they pretty much everybody did a Halloween episode this time. Uh, yeah, some more heavily Halloween influenced than others. Um, I guess let's start with Ben and Kate and uh, the Fox show. So Ben and Kate, new girl, Mindy project. What did you think uh, of these? I have the mo- the fondest memories of Ben and Kate, actually, if only because I think it instantly won the week for me with Kate's daughter's costumes that she made her wear like little Marie Curie, which I'm sure particularly appealed to you mm-hmm. and uh, the death of print journalism, which particularly appealed to me. <laughs> I, I enjoyed Babe, Babe Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That was fun. Oh yes, yes. And I, uh, I as ever, I identify with people acting older than they are. So her the, calling the cops at the end and just just being so exhausted. It's like, oh, I know exactly how that feels without having the pint sized child. Uh, but right. uh, yeah, oh, so I, I I enjoyed that. I liked uh, the the Mindy Project this week as well. Anytime. Just the whole the montage sequence of Halloween costumes was entertaining to me. And I, have you ever been in that situation of okay, I have ten minutes and I need an amazing costume? No, sadly, I've not worn a Halloween costume in over a decade. Total Scrooge! Halloween's amazing. Yeah, I know, I know. <sighs> Sorry, my Halloween costume was awesome, but uh, uh, but no, yes, Mindy Project was okay. I, I feel like it's. It's on an even keel, but sort of like Ben and Kate isn't blowing me away, but I don't find quite as charming as Ben and Kate, so it's like a just a slightly just – I slotted just underneath. Mm-hmm. I liked Happy Endings this week. Um, it, it was an improvement over the last one, I think, but it still hasn't uh, exploded my brain. I, you know, the, the whole thing with Alex and Dave – and I know that they're hanging a lampshade on that this week by having the 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 realtor, yeah, the realtor, you know, say everything that we're thinking. But uh, that still doesn't solve the problem. Though, if we get to see some chicken fights, then it's worth it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, fair enough. It's not like a Tom and Ann situation where it's so wrong that it's kind of right. Mm-hmm. It's just annoying. Yeah. So, it, yeah, for them to acknowledge it even actually makes it slightly more annoying. Now, you enjoyed Don't Trust the Bee last week. What did you think of this one? Uh, well, you know, it was all about lampooning rom-coms, which I'm all about, as long as it's effectively done, which I think it was. Um did, did you did you are you back on this or no? I I can never remember. Yeah, I watched this one, but it didn't particularly impress me. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, on board, I guess. The the rom-com subplot was the best thing that the episode had going for it, but it didn't quite hit hit it just right as far as I was concerned. Like, I, I didn't care by the end, one way or mm-hmm. the other. And so I don't know what they were going for, what they were hoping, what I was supposed to be feeling in the, that last scene, but I wasn't laughing. And so mm-hmm. if, I wasn't la- if I wasn't laughing and I didn't care about the characters, then, you know, I think I'm off. Don't trust the bee, just because 
I like the people involved, but it does it's not making me laugh and I don't already have the investment with it that I have with some of these other shows that haven't been making me laugh. Fair enough. I, I guess I'm enjoying that it, it doesn't seem to have a similar sort of I mean, like every other comedy, it seems like to me, is either a hangout comedy or like, you know people will they will you know, are these people gonna hook up comedy and that, Barbara this is a hangout comedy. Different? It sort of is, but it's also it's it's a different. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how to quantify the difference, except that we don't necessarily, we're, we're not necessarily meant to identify with the people we're hanging out with. I guess. Okay. If if, if we can identify that as a difference, we're sort of meant to enjoy how eccentric and uh, I guess no, eccentric isn't the right word. I'm just I, I enjoy that it's 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 a shade meaner than it has to be, and sometimes funnier, although not always. Uh, I don't know. I, I want to defend it, but I, I feel ill-equipped to do so. <laughs> Maybe next week I'll, I'll do a better job. But I, I feel like it's on a slightly different wavelength, okay. if not a if not a higher one. Okay. Um, we'll move on, though, to 30 for 30, which had its last episode for at least a while. We're going to uh, have a final one coming in December. But this was Ghosts of Old Miss. And I really like this one. And I, so, therefore, I was very surprised to to turn on the Internet and see that a lot of people <laughs> were not fans at all. Uh what did you think? Well, I, I think the, the the overarching feeling that people are having is that the documentarian really didn't have anything to say about the era and uh, in, in particular the sort of the contradictions of racial segregation and et cetera, et cetera, which honestly was kind of fine by me. Like, I, I, I can't contradict that because he really doesn't – he it seems like he had all these thoughts of, oh, this was strange and this was intense and wouldn't this be interesting to depict and talk to these people and then just sort of stopped there, which was actually fine by me because, you know, it's only an hour long. It it was happy to just sort of evoke these issues and let it resonate and you can do with that what you want. Yeah, I wasn't looking for answers. I don't think there are answers to something like this. I, I think it did a good job of... I know some people have a problem with the reconstructions or whatever, but I was fine with that. That didn't bother me at all. Um, and, and something like this is a some, is a event that a lot of people know about um, in theory. A lot, I'm sure there are a bunch of people watching this who maybe didn't know about what went down uh, at, at Mississippi. But... Um, but I think they did a good job of of showing a little bit of a historical filter on it, but also that that sort of that experience of what do you do when you kind of page through your family's history books and you realize that probably this thing that went down where you live, probably you know people who were in the wrong about it. I mean, yeah, a few people died, uh, and it certainly was a bad situation, but that does there isn't an easy answer and so i think to try to come up with one would have been too pat and and i think i mean I, this one this worked for me basically I, th I think there were some interesting things I, I think it also probably would have helped if if he'd been able to get more out of the football i think the by far the most interesting part was the the riot and uh and, and that side of things and so i would have liked more of a connection between what you know the football players were experiencing and what their day to day was like and and what right. was going on at the school rather than just it seemed like we're going to talk about this riot which is really interesting and the segregation of the school oh and by the way they were playing football it was an amazing football season yeah and that that was the one aspect that like when people complained about not showing enough or not explaining enough when they when he when the narrator's just like somehow they had an amazing season <laughs> 
and that he kind of just leaves it there. Okay. Which is crazy, but it didn't seem like he got that much. I I mean, who knows how much material he had to work with from the football players. Um, Because I feel like the person to talk to would be the coach. And I don't know if the coach is around. I I think they said the coach had had passed away um, before they started doing this. And so most likely, yeah. Yeah. The people that would be the most interesting to talk to about about that experience are are no longer with us. So it kind of makes it tough. But I think we can agree that uh, James Meredith. Yes, is that guy just rules. Wins. <laughs> when they started showing him not knowing, you know, not being American, I thought, okay, when? How long has this guy been dead? And then he shows up. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, and and uh, you know, I think a whole documentary just about him and his experience, and I th- I think would be fascinating. And I think he shows a lot of a lot of reflection and a lot of awareness of what his he was thinking and what his experience was at the time and 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 so i thought that was really interesting and sort of juxtaposing all those things together but uh there's definitely there's an interesting story or at least interesting documentary to be made about the 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 issues of segregation and racism in the south and the you know the fact that so many of these schools southern schools either had the confederate flag up so long after after desegregation and after, you know, and, and so, or even some places still do fly, fly the Confederate flag to, yeah. you know, I think there's a really fascinating story there. And this was, you know, this keyed into the specific moment of the riots at, at Ole Miss. But uh, I think maybe there's more there to be told again, but I, I definitely think this is the strongest of the ones this season. And it was the first one that didn't feel like it was stretching for time. Yeah, I can, I can get behind that. Uh, also, the James Meredith bit made me think of if the National Guard got accompanied me to register for school, what would happen if I flunked out a few months later? <laughs> <laughs> How embarrassed. Ooh. Awkward. Yeesh. <laughs> Ew. Yeah. <laughs> just a bit. Uh, that's just where my mind went. Uh, let's talk about 30 Rock, which had its episode on Wednesday instead of Thursday this week. There's no one... There's... Is in America, so there's number one in America, or there's no I in America, depending on how you want to say the name of this episode. But this was the continuation of their episode last week about Jenna and her her peons. Uh, you didn't get a chance to see this one, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I liked last week more than you did, as I recall. And this, you know, I thought this did a good job of continuing the end of that one. And and it's one of the, these two together are one of the 30 racks I've most enjoyed this season. So I think they're, they're on the, the uptick again. So I, I look forward to seeing what else we get from 30 rock in the rest of this final season. Um, next I have a, just briefly about supernatural blood brothers. I'm really enjoying uh, the character of Benny that they've introduced this season, and I thought this was a good episode. We'll see what, where they go with him moving forward, but uh, but I I, they, I like the actor. I like where they're going, at least where they appear to be going with it at this moment. And we'll see if they can salvage Sam's storyline, which I still don't care about at all. <laughs> but uh, me liking uh, the Dean storylines more than the Sam storylines is not something new on Supernatural. I'm curious, by the way, if anybody out there is also watching Supernatural, I'm curious what you think about this, because I know uh, Simon doesn't watch Supernatural, so I have only a few people to talk to about about how the season's going. So I would love to hear from uh, from you guys about what you, what you think. Let's continue on, though, to the Thursday comedies. So uh, that this week means It's Always Sunny, 
the League Children's Hospital and NTSF SDSUV. So let's start with um, Children's and NTSF. I, I enjoyed Children's, uh, at, I believe, with Children's Hospital this week, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know, maybe the title was the best bit. I don't know. I, 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 I suppose it, it made sense that they were eventually going to tie in a legal procedural, if only for 11 minutes. Um, I, I thought this was, this was fun. It leaned a little bit too heavy on the Coke gag, which, I don't know, Coke isn't a funny drug to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there are funny drugs. I don't think Coke is one of them. Uh, but I don't know. There, there were a, there were a few chuckles to be had. Definitely not up with I think the previous two weeks, especially the the uh, year in the life episode we got a couple weeks ago, which I think was probably the best of the season. Yeah, I I, mean, I wasn't laughing. I didn't think this was particularly good at all. Uh, the the legal conceit could have been interesting, but like you said, there's an over reliance on a not funny coke gag, and uh, I thought Nate Cordry was utterly wasted. Um, I, I, I enjoy him. And so, uh, the character that they give him or like what they give him to do, I didn't think was entertaining at all, though. I did enjoy the Rob Corddry, uh, bits. Oh, and we forgot to mention, we got yet another Rob Corddry appearance this week at the end of happy endings, which was, he's been everywhere. Love that. Uh, so, so, so yeah, his, I think I guess his stuff in the jury box was the most entertaining of the episode, but I was actually rather disappointed by both children's and NTSF this week. I mean, what a what a waste. Yeah. Well, you know, they'll they're are, it, were, were they finales or are they both back next week? I feel like one of them is over. I thought it was supposed to be the NTSF finale, but apparently but there's a preview. But there's yeah. a preview, so I don't know if that's just them screwing with us or if yeah. there actually well, is an episode. Well, let's let's see if Adult Swim can uh, can keep up its usual uh, ratio of awesome, conclusive, tying up all the loose end finales that that they're known for. <laughs> um, yeah. So I we'll, we'll see the um, with NTSF just the stuff with the with the dad wasn't particularly great and just seemed like a waste of the actor who I've enjoyed in other things. Um, but let's talk let's talk the league next, I guess. Uh, Breastalizer. Yeah, this this, this is what sort of what I was worried about was the league sort of leaning a little bit too hard on the juvenile side of things, which, again, too much Raffi. Mm-hmm. I don't like Raffi. <laughs> I don't know why they keep bringing him back. Yeah, he's uh, not particularly entertaining. The character isn't. I think it's because I feel like he's always at 11, and yeah. so that, that gets old. And and the rest of the show is, like, vaguely realistic, which, mm-hmm. makes, which makes the juxtaposition just even more glaring. Yeah, the... Um... I don't know. I guess I was supposed to be entertained by the the drunk mom having to get breastalized by the by the pain in the ass uh, mother in law, but I didn't think it was funny, and I didn't like either character. So I I just was it was it filled a lot of time, and I wasn't during which I was not laughing. Um, so I guess the best part was the taco and and George. Uh, that was kind of kind of amusing, I, and I did like their visit to the um, uh, what, what what was that class exactly? Yeah, mommy and me. Yeah, I, and Kristen yeah. Teleri. Yeah, I, I I've never seen the. I think she was on what the hills or something. Yeah. I've I've never seen that, but I thought she was funny. Yeah, that had some amusing conceits to it. Actually, I feel like that should have been the the linchpin of the episode and not mm-hmm. uh, drunk breastfeeding but you know yeah such is life uh so, and uh, while we're on fx comedies sunny i thought was actually mostly pretty good until the last 30 seconds or so yeah i you know once again always sunny is the most reliable comedy we have going right now at least on on thursdays and i, I thought it was actually a lot of fun um 
And then we get this last 30 seconds, which I still thought it was funny, but it felt completely out of character. And, of course, we're talking about Charlie and his cruelty towards Ruby, I want to say? Uh, and was that Isla Fisher, or am I imagining things? Uh, no, that was not. You're okay, imagining just checking. Things. She yes. looked a lot like Isla Fisher. Uh, anyway, yeah, that that's... I mean, I feel like it's part of the show's mythology that that Charlie's the only one out of them who's essentially kind of a decent human being, just a really deeply, weird. deeply strange one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they kind of went, they kind of completely contradicted that this week, which kind of upset me, to be honest. Yeah, it was, uh, it felt very strange because he doesn't show malice in, in, in anything else. He's not a mean character. And uh, so... Unless, unless he's working for the waitress. Like, I, I think there was a, um, and the waitress is getting married a couple seasons ago when he ends up giving that guy a, a, a box of bees. Yeah, a box of bees. Like, but that was you know to defend the waitress's honor or revenge or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that that you could rationalize, but this was just too much. Well, and then it's implied that he w orchestrated the poisoning of the waitress too, so that way she would you know need him when he was. Gone, so which seems out of oh, character no, I, too. I, I, I didn't, I didn't get that at all. I just thought Frank was doing that because it, he thought it was the right thing to do. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. But the the note that he has, the sheet that he has from Charlie, which the, though they've you know previously, um, you know, established that he has terrible, completely illegible, <laughs> yes, handwriting. Um, at the end, I mean, because it sounds like he orchestrated the waitress being, seeing the new girlfriend. So that she'd be jealous, but that she'd have to be like messed up so that she would be looking for Charlie's help. You know, I, I don't know. Oh yeah, that that he may he may have orchestrated. Yeah, I I don't like to think about it. It just feels wrong. Yeah. So so while it was funny, uh, we'll see. I, I assume it's gonna just not come up again, and he's gonna go back to being regular Charlie. What we can only hope. Yes, and the, I, don't, um, I don't I don't like dark Charlie. <laughs> the last thing I'll mention is I should have mentioned this when we're talking about um. Uh, NTSF, but I did very much enjoy the police procedural part, half of of. Uh, sorry, actually, I did really. I should say this about uh, before we move on about children's. I did very much enjoy the police procedural half of things. So I would be all for a Ken Marino on Law and Order kind of. Uh, uh, oh yeah, you know yeah. thing yeah. that was a lot of fun. Particularly the Catherine Hahn moving the pillows at the Lamaze class back and forth. Uh, Maybe I've just seen too much early Law and Order, but I, I recognize that scene, and it was it was a lot of fun. So absolutely. So yeah, there was, it wasn't all bad for me with children's. Um, let's move on though to the Vampire Diaries on Thursday, and this was uh, the five. Once again, we get answers just like that. Uh, what'd you think? Yeah, uh, I sometimes I need to watch what I say because we get answers, but I'm not sure I'm interested in the answers. So, eh, I guess I win and I lose as usual. Um, uh, it was all right, I suppose. I'm not really enthused about anything that's happening on the show right now, to be honest. I mean, the Elena's transformation is probably the most interesting aspect, mm -hmm. and it's not really driving the plot that much. It's just sort of, it's giving the actors new and interesting things to do. Uh, but the stuff with the five and folding in Jeremy, who's like the least interesting character eh, ever conceived. Tyler. Oh, well, it's kind of a tight race between them. I mean, at... Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, and and now, of course, Klaus is even more integral than before. I was like, oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I wasn't surprised that we were going to go with a cure storyline at this point. That that seems to make sense. 
Um, but well, I mean, I don't think any, you don't think it's actually going to succeed. They're not going to cure anyone. Well, no, because they want, because the CW wants this show to go on for a very, very long time. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it sounds like, it sounded like in the episode that it was like an individual, like not a permanent cure for all vampires all at once, but just like, it's like a potion and you drink it and you're not a vampire anymore. Um, and I don't think that's happening to any of our leads, maybe Rebecca or something. I could see Rebecca being cured and that being a way to keep her on the show. But, but no, I, yeah, I, I like this episode more than you did. And I, I was fine with the answers that we got. Um, I like that. The, the tattoos, like what they do with the tattoos makes sense to me, um, as well as the potential. It sounds like this guy's going to get killed and then Jeremy's going to start having the tattoos show up. But we'll, I don't know, we'll see um, what happens. But yeah, not, it wasn't as impressive to me as the last couple weeks have been. Um, but when you compare it to our next show, which is the pilot to Malibu Country, the last of the network pilots, it was it was Shakespeare. Because the Malibu Country pilot is not good. Uh, shock and astonishment. This is was on ABC or is on ABC on Fridays. Um, one of the two networks to, to theoretically go into having sitcoms on, on Fridays, though NBC has kind of balked at that and not actually brought the either show back. Um, but uh, it's Reba McIntyre. It's an utterly wasted Lily Tomlin. It's just sort of a shame to see her here. And then Sarah Rue, as much as I've enjoyed her other places, just this is not a funny show. It's not an entertaining show. It's it's nothing you haven't seen before. And the quicker it goes away, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I do not want my wonderful memories of Lily Tomlin destroyed by watching this. It it wasn't all bad on Friday, though, because we also had Fringe, which was uh, an origin story. And I, it appears that we will be going a different direction than I anticipated with the rest of this season. What did you think of this episode? Oh, thank God for that. Uh, I really wasn't all that excited about the prospect of a quest for a bunch of videotapes, which I guess we're technically still getting. But uh, the notion of Peter becoming an observer or at least messing with observer technology is way more interesting to me uh even if it was very obviously ripping off the david cronenberg playbook with the thing slithering into his neck uh can i just mention something odd i was really impressed with the effects this episode okay especially for a show that i assume is has got a budget cut based on the fact that it's basically being silently slowly killed off with a shortened season and I'm always surprised when it pulls out some some cool effects. I, I liked the uh, the sort of wormhole effect we get with the observers importing and exporting material from the future. <laughs> um, that was pretty cool, and uh, and I like the whole design of Peter's little torture lab. But yeah, I, I was sort of dreading this episode because post post significant death episodes are usually such a drag, and it's really difficult to find an interesting way to say we're all really sad. And uh, I think they managed to do that, which was kind of impressive. Yeah, I've really, uh, especially, uh, I really liked the scene we got with Walter and Olivia. And I feel like that scene is the center of this episode. As much as there's explosions and a lot going on on the plot side, um, somehow I hadn't connected the uh, the blatant parallels between Walter and Peter, each losing a child. It's like... Oh yeah, duh. Uh, yeah, you do know he does know about you know killing dimensions in order to try to feel purpose after your child child dies. Um, so that was really cool, and the fact that they managed to not sledgehammer me over the head with that 
to the point where I didn't even expect it was was pretty great. Well, with with Peter going mad scientist at the end, it was slightly sledgehammer, but I was okay with it. Actually, the one bit of sledgehammering I wasn't okay with was the observer almost stepping on Peter's head. Oh after yeah, he'd gotten the line about the shoe. Uh, where the shoe? Like it was a cool line the first time he said it, but then when they did the shoe, I was like, oh yeah, really? Well, and come on, guys. I uh, I I guess the other thing is that I really would like to get an answer to. You don't know what you don't know. So I'm really hoping we find out what they don't know soon, you know? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Donald Rumsfeld. It'd be nice if we found out the known unknowns, if, if they could know what the unknowns are, at least. Um, because that is that is intriguing. But it, if that's just sort of a tease that we don't see addressed again until the like the last few episodes before the finale, I'm going to be disappointed. Yes. I, I, I did kind of love the fact that the only reason Peter didn't blow himself up was because of a fly. That sh- that should have been a, a cor- like a I don't know that should have been corny or or, or strained, but I, I thought it was really really well handled. Yeah, it was it was good. Well, and also I like that once again they confirm that Peter's really good at this stuff. So it's not just Walter the the genius mad scientist and Olivia the very very special Cortexafan mind power person and this other guy <laughs> Peter. I like that they they keep confirming that he is really brilliant and you know has a whole other set of skills that is useful to the team uh which then takes us to Astrid who I feel every single week I'm frustrated by how she's utterly uh marginalized and unused and if if she wasn't in the episode at all I could understand more because they, you know, are not paying the actress that week because they have no money in their budget. But they keep having her in a scene and a half. And I don't understand that. Well, and also it's weird because they still treat her like she's an employee. Mm -hmm. And she's like one of the only, like, she only knows these people now. It's not like she has some life that we don't get to see. Yeah. She's just there. Like, she's as much a permanent fixture yeah, we see Olivia and Peter at home. Does she just live at the lab? I I I guess so. Because she's calling them at all hours about you know Amber and tapes and all that. I don't know. I also thought the the scene with the the video, the birthday video, was very touching and well done. So I, I mean, I think we like Fringe on you know on the Televerse. I'm clearly a fan, and I continue to be intrigued at what's coming next. The, the the it was sufficiently creepy as much as it perhaps is a lift from Cronenberg the way that the the chip or whatever slithered into his head was sufficiently creepy and I look forward to to what's coming next um yeah so so I'm, I'm liking the season yes well as long as it can keep throwing more left turns at us I'll be happy on Sunday we had Bob's Burgers back which is always something that makes me happy this was Bob fires the kids. Uh, this was fun, but not necessarily uh, one of my favorites. What did you think? Yeah, again, leaning on drug humor. In this case, pot humor. Pot is a funnier drug than Coke. That is I true. I think we could agree. Yes. But, uh, you know, pretty pretty familiar gags. I always forget that, that, that Kevin Klein is on this show. <laughs> I, every week the credits always always surprise me. And we, we had Offerman and Mulally in there as well. And, mm-hmm. All right. Doug Benson is the pothead cop. Right, yeah. Um, which, you know, all that stuff is great. But yeah, it's kind of a middling Bobs, but still, there's really no such thing as a bad Bobs. Yeah, I don't think they know how to do that. Which is which is a good thing to not know how to do. Which is a good thing to not know how to do. Amazing Race, the Monster Truck uh, team is gone. I, I enjoy your your pick, the Chippendales. I was enjoying them this week. Their, particularly their reaction to the, to the, was it the Turkish spa treatment that they went through and... 
how uh, I enjoyed watching the the guys just getting utterly destroyed by the deep tissue massage while the twins were just like, this is awesome. <laughs> that was that was pretty great. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still liking The Amazing Race. Uh, and if the promo for next week is to be believed, we could have a massive shakeup at our hands uh in our hands with the with the pool you are still number one sir i am now third place right behind dan uh we're coming for you oh well maybe uh, now i know to now i know to look because i didn't catch the episode this week but now i know to look for that promo for clues so i'll be one step ahead of you yeah well i I don't think this this won't shake up you but it could shake up the rest of the we'll see what happens but hopefully people are enjoying the pool let us know you know what you think about all the stuff and if you have any way uh strategies for taking down simon with his commanding first place lead please let me know the televerse at gmail.com because sir you're going down i think the only way for you you're all gonna have to coordinate and all go big on different on different people people? we'll see we'll see uh then we also had the finale of call the midwife which unfortunately it was a good it was a solid episode um but the show i don't think has ever gone above the you know broken through to the next level like i hoped that it would i think clearly chummy is the best part of the show i think there's a lot of really really great stuff this this week in this finale with sister monica jean um and and with chummy as well but it never quite broke through like i hoped it it would and i, I don't actually even know that I particularly care for a second series of the show. I would much rather get a, a like a spin-off show about Chummy because I just don't care that much about our protagonist. She's the least interesting character. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think this is all Jenny's fault? I think it's partially Jenny's fault. Um but and also I think it's because it started so strong and it you know, like it's something we talked about when the show first premiered. It is so wonderful to have a show that just sort of looks at the Bechdel test and just laughs, uh, thinks it's adorable. Uh, you know, this is the kind of programming that I wish we were getting on more shows, you know, characters, especially female characters who feel so, so realistic and lived in and wholly defined as opposed to just partially defined. I know that we talked about that on the walking dead uh, podcast this week about this week's episode, characters feeling too defined by the men in their lives. And that couldn't be further from the truth, um, on this show, but I think we I needed wanted more to be happening, either you know maybe it's just the fact that that we didn't see a single character die, um in, you know in childbirth and no children you know it just it didn't feel very realistic, in that sense. So then if it's not going to be a realistic, you know kind of look at what these women were experiencing, then I guess I want it to be a little more fanciful. But we didn't really get anything. It's just sort of an odd duck. So as much as I really enjoy the show. It didn't sweep me off my feet like I was maybe hoping it would. Yeah, I I, I didn't catch the last couple of weeks because I just didn't. But uh, it I I can get behind that sentiment where you, you kind of you feel like it has the potential to be a great great thing and it just never quite entirely clicks. It came very close I think once mm-hmm. or twice, especially yeah. with, like you said at the beginning of the run. But then it seemed to lose its way a little bit. I think not not, not off the rails. Two but... episode four probably the the best episodes. Um. But, I mean, it's, like like I said, not a bad show by any stretch of the imagination, and one that I, I, I do hope more people find. But, uh, but yeah, let, let's move on, though, to The Good Wife, which you did get a chance to see this week. And this one was The Art of War, and saw the return of that, uh, that military judge that we so enjoyed the first time around, uh, as well as just a ridiculous cavalcade of guest stars. 
what did did you think that was a detractor for this episode? I know that at times we feel the main cast gets overshadowed by all these guest stars that they bring in. I thought it was a good partnership this week, especially the way they paired up uh, Juliana Margulies with Amanda Peet, who is an actress I never think about, but she mm -hmm. was good here. Um, so she's the daughter, right? What? We, we, we're supposed to pick up on the fact that she's the military judge's daughter. She's got to be, right? Oh, I didn't at all. It's never commented on, but it, it seems like that's what's happening. Oh, I didn't. I, I never even that didn't even occur to me as a possibility. I mean, because she has a different name, but I. I mostly just saw her as uh, maybe I, I assume maybe the judge experienced something like that. Maybe just it's, you know, the judge has any sort of level of compassion and humanity in her yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that's that also possible it. she could be it could uh, be the anyway daughter. but but despite the fact that there was her and maura tierney and mm -hmm. uh, lots lots of guests i mean dennis o'hare stole the episode yeah <laughs> well and, and no mention of brian dennehy by the way as you, like in like when you have all these guests you're not going to mention brian dennehy is sitting at the opposing council yeah well he had he had by far the least flashy role yeah that's true I, I, honestly, it kind of looks like they shot his scenes in about two days, which is too bad because he's great. Mm. But uh, yeah. No, Dennis uh, O'Hare is definitely one of my favorite judges. I was very glad to see him back. Hopefully he will come back again. Um, uh, but yeah, they've done such a good job on the show with creating entertaining and fun judges. Like it's been a while since we saw the Anna Gassire judge. I would love to see her back as well. Um, they do such a good job of introducing these these quirky but but realistic and fun characters without allowing them to overstay their welcome. I Another one I really enjoyed this week, just that brief moment we get with Kristen Chenoweth, uh, just the look of glee, of maniacal glee on her face mm -hmm. when she realizes she's going to get a chance to take down one of her rivals. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was good. And I also like what they do with Jackie this week. Um, I'm glad that we're seeing something from her other than Bugs. Uh, yes. Yeah, that was great. I also feel like we only got one scene with Will Gardner this week, but it was a really funny one, and it was right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I and I, and I loved his sort of peeking through the door. And um, <laughs> although I did feel like the stuff with Nathan Lane and Carrie was a bit of a time filler. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm liking Nathan Lane on the show. Um, and, and his, but his read of the Nathan Lane character is somewhat, uh, if that's, if that's an accurate thing, that's kind of disappointing. I was hoping for more from that character than just parroting a Steve Jobs book, but oh well, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, Kalinda stuff continues to be annoying, but it was very minor this week, so... Yes, right. that helps. Hopefully that's going towards the right direction. We'll, we'll see what happens. I also like that they show Carrie having picked up on all of the, you know, the things with Kalinda and, and, and her husband, but... Uh, yeah, how do we feel about the development with Maura Tierney? Um, I think that... I think I like it, if only... I, I, I think I prefer the notion of Alicia actually having a friend... Uh, which is something that I feel like she hasn't had. It, I don't think that she should only be able to have Kalinda as a friend. That's That feels not... That just seems strange for this character, who is such a a warm and likable person, to not have any other friends. Um, but I think that Maura Tierney is... Well, first of all, Maura Tierney is fabulous, but I think she makes a compelling opponent for Peter. Um, and since they can't get Matthew Perry back anyways, and that's something the show's already done going this different direction with it, I think is interesting. And I, I like the protective side that it, it brings out in Peter. And I, I, I feel like they're capitalizing in a very effective way on the fact that they apparently have, 
however much note they want this season. Yeah. Where he was kind of in and out last year. Yeah. He's just always around. Yeah. Hey, it works for me. He's he's one of the uh, the things I like about the show. So it's uh, it's good to, to have him on more, you know, fully week to week. Next is Homeland, which I have not been able to see yet. What did you think? I feel like Homeland's been going through this process where it'll have like a mind-blowing game changer every few weeks. And then it'll have a filler episode or like a mostly filler episode. And this was kind of a filler episode. It did have a couple plot points finally showing up near the end, but um, a lot of stuff we already knew, a lot of time with Dana and the Veep's son and that whole thing, which is not panning (laughs) out, not panning out in a way I was hoping that it would as in any interesting way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how they're going to salvage that at all. And it's sad because the actress who plays Dana has gotten a lot better. Yeah, I really, right. actually, I really enjoy her performance in, in general as Dana. I think Dana's a really interesting character. And I do think that for some reason, um, a lot, it, it just, I feel like traditionally TV is more interested in sons than daughters. And so th- there's been just sort of in the past season or two, there's been a lot of really compelling and interesting daughters on TV. And it's nice to have her as, as one of them. I think maybe, maybe if you just take Game of Thrones out of the equation, that's, it's yeah. it's less skewed, but uh, but I think Dana's definitely one of them, and, and I've been enjoying her journey. So that's to see her saddled with what happens last week, um, and have it not somehow undone the next week is, is sort of unfortunate. Yeah, and we also spend a lot of time with Mike and the other Marine investigating Brody, which isn't terribly interesting either, as much as both actors are fine. Um yeah, I don't know. So they spent a lot of time with stuff we don't care about. But there were some interesting developments late in the episode that I won't talk about since you haven't seen it yet. Oh, well, I but, appreciate uh, the spoiler filtering. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well, I'm. it's one of those episodes that just makes you want to skip to next week. Okay. Well, and, and it, it was going to always be hard to follow Q&A, which was such a fantastic yes. episode. So Which was like, bits of that were like series best. So I guess it was kind of doomed. Yeah, I, I totally get just kind of taking a, a week to sort of reset but uh hopefully i will enjoy it more than you did though i fear i, w- I will not we can re- report back next week the last show we have to talk about this week is uh, i'm just going to briefly mention the voice uh, we have the, we had the end of the knockout rounds and also the first part of the live rounds or the live playoffs i believe is what they're calling this next chunk of the show the i mentioned last week that i was frustrated with the with the the knockout rounds because the judges seemed to do a particularly terrible job of, of, of thinning the herd as it were. They seemed to decide they wanted to pit the best people against the best people and the worst people against the worst people so that we made sure that we had good people and terrible people, uh, comparatively at least heading into the, the live rounds. And that frustration was only, uh, doubled when, with the second half of the knockout rounds, Christina managed to eliminate all but one of her best singers. She managed to pick the worst of the two in pretty much every performance, at least in, in of course, in my opinion, it's, it's very different when you're live when you're in person and you're experiencing that energy as and you can't really even hear what's going on it's very different when you're at home and you get the mixed audio and you can actually hear the singers and stuff but uh because of that i'm far less interested in in the show moving forward and then this in, in the live rounds last night we saw um it was team blake 
and Team Adam. Team Blake did not have a particularly stand, strong showing in general. There were, I mean, the, the singers each did a pretty good job, but when you compare them to Amanda Brown, who is the, the singer who nailed it uh, that week, they should just all go home and start crying because they're clearly not even in the same league as her. I think... I think also Team Team Adam is not particularly strong, other than Amanda. Everybody seems to love the Keith David or David. You know, Keith David, I think, is the guy's name. <laughs> um, but he just sounds sort of like he did a, a Goo Goo Doll song that really did not, I think, do anything great for him because he sounded too similar to the original, and so all of his weak lower range uh, sounded breathy and out of tune. And when you contrast it with the original, which he was trying to sound too similar to. Um, so mostly there's there's like two or three singers that I think are in contention and uh, everybody else should just stop being on the show so that we can speed things forward. So I guess, I guess I'm not as enthused this season as I was. But uh, all that having been said, Amanda Brown killed Dream On last night. And if you have not heard it, you need to go out and out to YouTube and watch it because... Damn, that girl can sing. Uh, I was on the fence, and then she gets to the end and just brings it home. And I, and I, I basically made you watch it. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, you're right. It is it is an impressive two minutes of of TV singing. Yeah. So that is uh, that wraps up our week in TV. And uh, quick, a uh, few show notes here before we go to our DVD shelf with Michael Ryan of Masterpiece Cinema talking about Pushing Daisies. Our intro and after music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. There will be a post up at sound.site.org for this podcast. You can leave us a comment there. Let us know what you think of Pushing Daisies and the other shows that we talked about here. You can always, of course, email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. And we're both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. You are at sucker howl and uh then what should our what should our question this week be uh hmm actually since since we've since we've thrown around this terminology of pulling a homeland uh which which shows do you think need a pacing adjustment okay yeah uh, a-, a la homeland absolutely yeah uh so yeah let us know what you think and... <clears throat> how i met your mother <laughs> <laughs> well, Keith already gave his vote to, to Nashville, though you're welcome to add some others to that list if you'd like, Keith. Um, so, yeah, let us know what, you, what you're thinking about that. And we also had the final of our pilots. I'm I'm so glad to be done with pilots for at least a couple weeks oh, here. high five. High five. High five. Boom. Uh, so so we, hopefully we will be settled back into a, at least a, like a, a few weeks here of regular TV without any more pilots or anything like that uh, before we go into the, the winter doldrums. So we're going to take a quick break here, listen to some uh, music and a clip, and come back with Michael Ryan to talk Pushing Daisies. This is Ned, a man with the ability to bring things back to life. You touch murder victims, you ask who killed them, you touch them again, they go back to being dead, and then you collect the reward? That's it in a nutshell. Sweet. Until one murder changed everything. A $50,000 reward in the murder of Charlotte Charles. Do you know this girl? I know of her. Know of her in the biblical sense. Like a prince charming, Ned brought the love of his life back. The clock was ticking, and Ned made the most difficult decision of his life. What if you didn't have to be dead? It's just so shockingly stupid. Charlotte Charles was laid to rest earlier today. You can't touch me. I can't even hug you? What if you need a hug? So a kiss is out of the question. Doesn't she look a lot like that dead girl? 
She looks exactly like that dead girl. So the business partnership became a three-way cut. 30, 30, 40? It's only fair I get more. I did die for it. back with the televerse this is kate kulzik joined as ever by simon howell and this week at the dvd shelf we are pleased to welcome michael ryan from the masterpiece cinema podcast sound on site and of course the uncuts film festival uh to join us here at the shelf to talk about pushing daisies mike welcome to the show thanks for having me so pushing daisies what is it that uh, made you want to talk about this show um well i mean first of all it's always interesting to talk about shows that were um killed before their time and there's very much a sense of Pushing Daisies was one of those shows. I think it's also one of those shows that um, the people that loved it um, loved it so well. Um, and everyone else just never watched it. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing, too, is that it you know that a show is remarkable when it does things that you normally hate, but does them so well that you walk away saying, OK, why doesn't everybody do that? Uh, in my in my particular case, one of my real pet peeves is voiceover narration, because um, I always feel, um, unless you're doing it for stylistic reasons, like in film noir, uh, a lot of people use it as a crutch, and uh, they they use it to give you information that you can see just by you know looking at what's on the screen. Uh, and of course, I work with a lot of young filmmakers because the Uncut Film Festival is for great short films by the best young filmmakers. And we have a tendency to do something that film festivals normally don't do, which is give feedback back to filmmakers. And so one of the things I'm frequently telling filmmakers is, you know, your film has voiceover narration that tells you exactly what you see on the screen. You don't need it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all there, you know, or you have a character that says exactly what the narrator just said. You don't need to repeat it. Um, and yet this this because the, this the show is written so well it doesn't matter you know the voiceover narration works perfectly and it also allows um the the shows to be kind of like it's almost like every show is kind of like uh a feature film and yet they somehow find a way to cut 30 minutes out of the episode yeah absolutely it, it definitely has a very cinematic feel to it and I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was an expensive show, uh, but still, doing that on a TV budget is 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 impressive. And when you speak about the narration, we got to talk about Jim Dale, who is fantastic. And you know, granted, there are many like myself, I'm sure, out there who love him from his work doing the American version of the Harry Potter book books on tape. Yeah. Um, but if there's somebody to ever narrate my life. I want it to be Jim Dale <laughs> because I love his voice. These. Exactly. Simon, what did you think of Pushing Daisies? I know you were somewhat leery. Uh, well, sort of. I mean, I remember watching it live when it first premiered and really, really enjoying the first, I would say the whole first season, which is quite short. It's only nine episodes. And then for some reason, this is a time in my life I don't remember very well now. Um, I... When I say that, this was three years ago. Um, And then, for some reason, it lost me, I think, uh, partway through season two. Uh, uh, Maybe it was the feeling that there was was an encroaching big bad thing happening that I wasn't into. Maybe it was the the case of the weakness, I don't know. But uh, either way, I I dropped out of it. And then, when we arranged the shelf, I basically picked up where I left off after sort of refreshing myself with the pilot and and a couple other early episodes. 
And I have to say the show holds up a lot better than I remember. I still think my favorite Brian Fuller show is probably still Wonderfalls by a hair. But uh, this is this was a great show. And when you're talking about uh, Jim Dale's narration, I mean, we can have an argument about this maybe, but if it wasn't for Arrested Development, I think Pushing Daisies would have the best TV narration of at least the last 15 years. And I think when you're talking about uh, what it does for the show, you mentioned uh, film noir, uh, Mike, and what's interesting is that Pushing Daisies has elements of noir, but it's it's sort of a, a blend of noir and fairy tale. And what's great about the narration is it's equally suitable to either of those genres. And uh, it manages to serve as both without being awkward. Pushing Daisies is such a high concept show that it it needs to restate exactly what's going on basically all the time so that new viewers won't be lost, at least if it's on a you know broadcast network. And a great way to do that is to have Jim Dale tell you those things instead of having characters restate it within the show, which would get really tiresome. If it's rhyming, it's not quite as tiresome. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It should be more tiresome, but it it really isn't. Uh, and, and I think you mentioned, Simon, uh, that a big part of the show is film noir. And and I've said this before, but this Pushing Daisies has so many different, completely contrasting elements that I love, uh, all kind of jumbled together. It and it, it shouldn't work. It has film noir, it has fairy tale, it has musical numbers, it has lots of pie, which I always, always makes me happy, um, and, and and then it also has this incredibly gorgeous visuals. These visuals and 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 all these different, completely separate elements somehow balance each other out. You're, you're also not mentioning the fact that it's, it's very much a screwball romantic comedy. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Which, which might be like, I mean, there's, um, uh, when they were talking about the music in the, the special features of the, um, uh, of the, of the second season, you know, one of the things that the composer talked about was that, um, you have all these sort of conflicting elements and there's so much spice in it that the only way really to balance it out is to add a lot of sweetness. And it sort of feels like the, the screwball romantic comedy is kind of what gives the show balance from everything else. See, whereas for me, it's the, uh, it's, it's the show feels really sweet. And uh, I feel like the uh, acidity of especially Emerson and some of those darker elements are what balance out just what could be an incredibly saccharine show. You know, when the show first came out, I remember people throwing around, throwing around a lot of Tim Burton comparisons, and those are valid. But to me, the, the chief influence has to be Jean-Pierre Genet, and specifically Amélie. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Anna Friel even looks kind of like Audrey Tattoo, especially in her funny little outfits uh, and her disguises. Adorable. 1940s and 50s inspired. Just, oh, I love the color right. of clothes on the show. But the, I mean, even just the whole, pre I mean, setting aside the visual style and the, and especially the music, which is straight out of the Yan Tiersen playbook, just th this uh, sort of case of the week's. Uh, sort of premise where they are meddling in people's lives or deaths rather uh, is, you know, very reminiscent of Amity. I don't know if we want to talk about what killed the show. Cause I mean, the conventional wisdom is that the writer's strike kind of killed the show. Although I almost feel like that worked to the show's benefit um, because when the show first premiered um, in 2007, um, it, you know, the writer's strike kind of interrupted it. So it only got nine episodes out. And then it like the last episode was, you know, just before Christmas 2007. And then we didn't get a new episode until like um, late fall of 2008. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, that huge gap. And then we got 13 episodes during which, you know, most of those episodes ended up being made as they kind of knew they were going to get killed because they got killed after about like four or five, like, you know, before 2009 started, we knew that the show was dead. But well, st- yeah, except that they had to rush a, an epilogue at the end of the, the final yes. episode because they didn't know that they were canceled. And so they kind of threw together like a montage sequence that really, it re- it's really jarring in that episode. Yes. So while there was a sense that it was probably not going to come back, it, they didn't know for sure right. until late in the production run. Yeah. The, the, oh. the other, the other, but my point was that it, it's almost like, um, to a certain, because it's, there's 22 episodes over three years, it's almost a Doctor Who schedule, you know? And I think that kind of felt like every, like, I don't, if you ask me what my least favorite episode of Pushing Daisy was, I don't think I could tell you. Cause I don't think I, I mean, there's like tons, like I know which ones are my favorites, but it's not like any of them are, are to me are bad. Mm-hmm. Well, and w- when people uh, talk about Pushing Daisies as one of those brilliant, but canceled shows or a show that didn't get enough uh, episodes. I mean, I suppose that's technically true. I, I mean, I would have loved to have seen more Pushing Daisies, but I don't have that same sense of lamentation about it just because I feel like in those 22 episodes, it did it pretty thoroughly explored its universe and its sort of pe- peculiar emotional space. So I I don't like sure. I, I would love it if I, I know Fuller said that he would he he would uh, he was inspired by stor- stars and their deal with Torchwood. And he sort of wanted to try something similar with Pushing Daisies. And it doesn't seem like the cast is all that busy except for Chenoweth, who I assume is doing Broadway stuff. But, um, you know, I, I don't have that same sense of, oh, like, I I have this burning desire to see more Pushing Daisies. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I just feel like they, uh, they, they made the most of their time, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, and also this is a show whose premise comes with an expiration date. There's only so much you can do when your two main characters, your star-crossed love or whatever at the center, center of the show can't touch each other. There's only so much to explore with that. And so I think the show would have had to, uh, I mean, I think they did a good job of stretching that out in a not overly painful way over the course of the 22 episodes, but they would have had to come up with some sort of a solution or answer. They would have had to try to switch the direction, I think, of the show to, to get much more out of it. Well, and I think that is the one thing that we are robbed of with no proper ending. I mean, we do get that quick epilogue, but we, we that's the one thing that I guess viewers could want is a resolution to the Chuck and and uh, and Ned story in mm-hmm. which they find a solution, which we never get. And that's a little unfortunate, but it's also it's hard to think of a way for them to get out of that that would be satisfying. Maybe... Fuller had something in mind, but he's never let it on as far as I know. Well, I mean, I think there's always sort of been this feeling that um, whether it's through a comic book or a miniseries or a movie, that there was enough affection for Pushing Daisies that there was going to be something else coming down the pipe. And so I think that's sort of why he sort of kept that under wraps. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have a, a different sort of theory about what killed it. And I, and I think it's, you know, in, in the, the, the series this is that I, I compare this the most to, and I suppose it's it's um, a good thing for Pushing Daisies fans because it sort of implies that there is a possibility for a future. Um, and it may seem like a weird comparison, but it's Police Squad. Um, and that's because I I don't think people like it when you mock procedurals. 
Um, I think you can get away with your tongue firmly uh, in cheek. Um, but I think th there's a sense in which pushing daisies is a farce about procedurals, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the outlandish deaths. Um, there's a sense in which the entire thing is a kind of a cover for the screwball romantic comedy. And I think to, to a certain extent that viewers kind of punish that to a certain extent. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the series is, is almost like um, the, the punchline to the joke about how you can put together any two or three people and add the words, they fight crime to the end and the show makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the detective, the pie maker and the dead girl and they fight crime, you know? <laughs> uh, and to a certain extent, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, we have this whole universe of web comics now, which are kind of built around this idea that you can, you know, so you get things like Axe Cop, right? Um, uh, you know, where you can put together any two weird features and then just say, and that there's an audience out there for that. Um, and that's sort of why one of the things I think about Pushing Daisies is that there there is an audience for Pushing Daisies. There was an audience. It just unfortunately wasn't very big. Yeah. It was it was not a network draw not not a network audience. It was a you know a prestige uh, cable audience, I would say. And this one of the things that you often will hear people when they discuss pushing daisies uh, say either well either they love it like like me or it's something where they can appreciate what it does well, but they you know they were getting tired of it. You know it's it's a lot to take in. It's very busy you know visually and with the performances they're not small um and so i could see how you could see how the audience sort of dwindled over the course of the first season and i would say that being off for an entire year uh, because of the strike really did not help you know the, the show stay in people's minds it's important to say that the the pushing daisies had got really big premiere numbers um and ended up dropping about 10 million viewers over the course of its run um but yeah it it's something that it's kind of astonishing when you think about that a show with all of these different elements with, that is this unique and uh, precise in its tone actually happened on network television. Well, I, I think what Mike said about you can add um, and they fight crime or they you know, solve murders uh, to the premise. I think that's a big part of that. I think they, they had a great high concept hook with the Ned character, which they were able to explain relatively quickly. Uh, in recaps and in ads and in the episode itself. And as if you can get away with that, I think the lesson here is you can get away with whatever else you want mm -hmm. as long as you deliver that. So uh, Fuller gave them that, and then he also tacked on elaborate production design and musical numbers and outsized performances and, and fun casting that he probably, that other shows wouldn't even think to do. I, I think the other thing, too, is that um, there's very much a sense that when you hire Brian Fuller, you're hiring a genius, and you don't give genius notes. Um, the One of the writers from Shears, uh, Ken Levine, is a blog, and he talked recently about one of the things that really hurts um, uh, TV, but may, broadcast TV, but especially comedies, is that when they were running Shears, if they wanted to bring in a weird-looking guy to deliver a line or to do a part, nobody told them what to do or who to hire, which is you know how they ended up with a lot of guys on TV who just did not look like they ought to be on TV. And but we're really funny. And the, the downside to that now is that um, you have a lot of interference from TV executives with uh, showrunners where they kind of micromanage what people are doing. And the end result is that a lot of TV shows end up looking like the CW where 
you know, everyone is really pretty. And, and the same kind of pretty, too. And the, exactly, the same kind of pretty. I, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, like one of the jokes used to be about CW is that if they ever remade Beauty and the Beast, there's no way they would hire Ron Perlman to play the Beast. And we actually, as they've proven. Exactly. <laughs> we, have, we have tangible proof this year. It's like, oh, hey, the Beast is really pretty. How <laughs> odd. Um, and, and, but by the same token, you know, and the, the other side to that equation is that, you know, you can't, um, if you can't give a genius notes, at the end of the day, the only thing you can do is fire him, which is exactly what happened with Community, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he wouldn't do it the end well... of the day. Okay. A lot of things happen with Community, but, but yeah, tension between the the studio or the the um, the, the production side of things and and the creator was definitely one of the issues. Right. I mean, sure. ultimately, he he shot himself in the foot and gave them the opportunity to fire him. Is that certainly true? But at the end of the day, too, it's like, you know, you can only give somebody notes for so long where, it, I mean, at a certain point, it's either do we give this guy notes because he's a genius and he's just going to ignore them? Or, you know, I mean, the only resource for that sort of thing is at the end of the day is that you, you have no choice but to fire him because he's simply not going to do what you ask him to do, how, no matter how stupid it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and, and I think it is important to say that some notes are very helpful. Yes. The, the right kind of notes, having, a, you know, a, a second opinion outside of the, the daily, you know, interaction of the cast and the crew and the, the writing staff can be very helpful. Uh, but yeah, the micromanaging, like you mentioned, Michael, is definitely a problem on, on a lot of network shows. And, and obviously this particular show, there is no sign of network micromanaging at all. Mm-hmm. Not really, no. Um, and it's, it's rather astonishing. Yeah, it, it was definitely a gamble, and it didn't necessarily pay off. And it, 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 you know, you can you can speculate about in a world without a writer strike how much better it would have done. Honestly, I think it would have done about the same. Maybe it would have run one more season, maybe not. But also, uh, but... maybe it would have not come back at the end of its first year. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit uh, before we run out of time here about uh, this cast and these characters because I mean the, you've got a character named Olive Snook I mean I love the just the names are fabulous but uh, I guess for me my favorite characters are, are Emerson and and Olive and I do think that both Chai McBride and Kristen Chenoweth get potentially career best characters here and are are pretty fantastic How about you guys What what characters stand out to you um, I'm I really like Ned. Um... I mean, he's kind of like the still center that everything else kind of revolves around. Um, and I really appreciate that. And Lee Pace is good, is great at that, too. Yeah. That's a, that's a, not necessarily a, a particularly showy kind of role, but Lee Pace succeeds in it in a way that others with that straight man role really don't. He he makes Ned a distinct character. Well, he, he's not just a straight man. He's a straight-jacketed man, and he... And it's it's really hard to make a guy like that consistently sympathetic and not just pathetic. And uh, you know, it, it's 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 really fascinating to think about his role on Wonderfalls, which was a, one a, a completely different. Mm-hmm. And I I would say this role is a little bit better suited to his strengths. And I, I don't think we're ever going to get a chance to see him shine like this again. Yeah, he's great in the fall as well, uh, the film. But uh, but I love him here. It's definitely de- definitely a reason that that this show works. Can I give a shout out to the coroner? Oh, love him! <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't don't. I told you not to turn her over. <laughs> I, I I I was glad they made a little bit of time for him in the finale. Um, but, but yeah, Cy I mean, Richardson. I, yeah, he's yeah. Great. I mean, 
all, all the characters are great. I mean, I, I, I think I have to give it to Emerson as well, just because uh, Chai McBride is, is such an important part of, of why the show works for reasons that Kate already explained. And he, he I, I, I like they um, inevitably he does get sort of sentimental beats now and then, but they're they they but it's very reserved. And uh, and that's fantastic. Uh, we have to throw it out to the ants as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Susie Kurtz and Ellen Green. Am I the only one who gets the sense that every time Jane Lynch has gotten a role, Susie Kurtz has been in the next room? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do think uh, it's it's great to see Susie Kurtz on this. She doesn't get enough uh, to do. I know she's, I'm pretty sure she's on Malibu Country, the, that Reba McIntyre sitcom that's starting up relatively soon here. Um, uh... if, if it hasn't already, actually. Um, but... Uh, but, but yeah, I, th- I think she, br- you know, again, it's it's the same thing with her character as with Chai McBride's. She brings that acidity uh, and and um, sort of angst and uh, just bitterness that really helps balance out. You know, I think Ellen Green and Susie Kurtz together, those two, the two aunts really work well as a pair. And, and just the, the the eye patch, the you know, that they that they put her in, the dazzled and jeweled and feathered and all of that. It's just so much fun. I do think it's unfortunate that uh, I, I, I think the one real downside to Pushing Daisies that keeps it from being as as good as Wonderfalls is um, I, I think it's unfortunate that they decided to keep the aunts in the dark and to keep Olive in the dark for the length of the series as to what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- w- it's it's a constant discussion uh, here on the Televerse um, how shows are usually better off when characters disclose things to each other rather than keep them from each other. And um, I think that is true here as well. I would have loved to have seen the aunts a little bit more enmeshed in what goes on. Well, it's exactly the thing is with Wonderfalls. When, when, when Aaron finds out about Jay's secret on on Wonderfalls, the show gets better really quickly. I mean, I, I think it's the whole show is good. I really like the show, but that having somebody, you know, people in on it and not trying to, hide if come up with excuses to hide the big secret uh really helps the show and i think that is would definitely have been the case here as well um one of my favorite comic book writers is walt simonson who's probably best known for a really fantastic run on thor um everything that's good about the 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 thor movie pretty much comes from him um and he was famous in his comic books for pulling the trigger Mm -hmm. you know like you know, the Thor comic book had for like 200 issues talked about Ragnarok, the death of the gods and how this is all hanging over everybody's heads. And the first thing that he did when he started the series is, all right, so what happens after Ragnarok? You know, let's actually have that happen and then see what happens, you know, because that's interesting, you know, because we've talked about it for so long and, you know, we, we've talked about it as something that's ever actually going to happen. So let's actually do it. Um, yeah. And I think a lot, a lot of shows could sort of benefit from that to to sort of say, OK, well, let's you know, let, let's actually do that and then see what happens. Although, mind you, I, I you know, the entire opening subplot of the second season, um, and, and in a lot of ways, um, I'm kind of the opposite of, of Simon, which should, you know, surprise no one, in that I like the second season better than the first. Um, and the opening subplot of all of, you know, getting sent to a nunnery um, so that she won't blab out the secrets uh, is, I think, you know, fantastic. Uh, and and one of the places where the series did pull the trigger rather nicely is when, um, you know, all of, you know, finally blurts out the secret. Um, but she tells Ned and, you know, and she says, well, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm going to go tell Chuck. Um, and that that sequence, I mean, her, the look on her face when he tells her is uh, absolutely amazing. 
I th- that's a really that's a really great episode. And actually, uh, on on rewatch, I think I'm, I I would put the second season about on par with the first. I, I don't really detect that much of a difference. Yeah, it's a very consistent show. It's something like you said, Mike, earlier that you can think of your favorite episodes, but there isn't unlike on a lot of other you know bigger concept shows where they'll be they'll try something. I mean, there'll be an episode where they go in a different direction and it just completely kind of falls apart. There isn't one of those. And, uh, and so I guess that's a good way to transition into what are your guys' um, favorite episodes? And then I also, being me, we've already talked a little bit about the music. Jim Dooley is the composer. But let's talk about the musical numbers. Do you guys have a favorite musical number? Um, well, for me, the the obvious favorite um, is the one uh, that was based on the Bangle song, uh, Eternal Flame. Uh, the entire episode, Comfort Food, is built around that. And... Uh, it was also one that she, uh, that Kristen uh, chose as a song that she wanted to do. Um, and it really, really works. I mean, it, it ultimately, it, it's, it's every, it, ex- it perfectly explains who her character is. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a great number. Um, the one that that's, is, is most stuck in my head is probably, uh, I think it's called Birdhouse in Your Soul, the, the They Might Be Giant song, where, yeah. which is one of the few times we get Kristen Channel with singing with Ellen Green, which is always wonderful as far as I'm concerned. Simon, how about you? Yeah, I can't argue with that one. Well, and then how about episodes? Which ones stand out to you guys? Um, the pilot, obviously. Um, it's a good I pilot, think definitely. It's a good pilot. Um, I the, the finale, other than um, the kind of, uh, oh, we have to wrap up the series in 30 seconds kind of thing at the end is really good. My the one The one episode that every time I watch it, I fall off. Uh, the couch laughing at is circus circus mm-hmm. um it, it, in particular the the cold clone car sequence is is in one sense really grim and in the other sense is just completely hilarious simon how about you uh it's uh d- definitely it's it's a good pilot i mean uh, if the the pilot will t- it's one of those pilots that will tell you if you're going to be into the show or not <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it it puts it all out there yeah um if if you're not into the pilot it leave run away um, but if you are, you'll probably dig the rest of the series. Um, I remember Dim Sum Lose Some being mm. a good one. That's season two, episode five. Um, there's some uh, there's some good Emerson action in that one in particular. Um, I agree the the finale's solid, and even though the there are aspects of the ending that are rushed, I think especially just the reveal, the long overdue reveal with uh, with the aunts is uh, really nicely played. Yeah, I'd agree about uh, Dim Sum, Lose Some. I, you know, any of these Emerson episodes are going to be ones that I enjoy. And I believe that's the episode where we get him knitting money cozies. Uh, which is just, <laughs> and also, of course, Lil Gumshoe, his pop-up book designed yes. to get published so that and lead his, you know, his daughter back to him is is pretty great. Uh, I also really like, we already mentioned Comfort Food, which has Olive singing uh, Eternal Flame. Uh, I think the the... The see, I have trouble with some of the episodes. Bzz, the B episode, which is the yep. season two premiere, is good. Also, the lighthouse episode, whichever one that is. Uh, the legend of Merle McQuaddy. And the uh, the windmill episode. Do you know which one that is? Ooh, um, that's a good question. I don't remember that. I don't remember the title of that one. Um, but uh, oh, pigeon, I think, because pidge. I think is an early part of that one. And that, that one's very fun. There's a lot of really great guest stars on this show too, as, who pop up for, you know, recurring runs. We have Steven Root who, uh, you know, anybody who's listened to the, the television for a while knows that we love him. Um, uh, David Arquette, I think has a really fun turn as yep. this, 
very strange sort of friend of uh, eventual friend of of Ned's. Uh, we already mentioned the coroner, and I would also mention, of course, we you loved her on, um, or at least I loved her on, on Wonderfalls. But Diane, uh, where is Diana Scarwood, Diane Scarwood, yeah, as the Mother Superior is pretty fabulous. I I have a soft spot for Molly Shannon's appearance as mm-hmm. a as sort of a rival candy shop op- uh, operator in one episode. Uh, I I really really love Deborah Mooney as uh, um, Emerson's mom. I I, I I she just she just so a doesn't I mean looks like his mom and doesn't look like his mom simultaneously. But her her sense of humor is so perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And then then I also want to mention Paul Rubens is just yeah delightfully strange in the in the he's it's like that's the perfect kind of casting for this show. Um, do, you, do you want to talk about influences very briefly? Because yeah. not, not influences, but I mean, shows that were influenced by this. Because I, I have a weird opinion about, well, I mean, obviously, it's it's obvious to point out, like, Once Upon a Time and Grimm are both heavily influenced by this show. In particular, how they both tried to, um, I guess, avoid what network executives might think were the mistakes of this show. So one of them being that both of those shows are designed in such a way that you can have lots of scenes where you don't have to spend a lot of money on scenery and, you know, music and all the other things that make, that made this show so expensive. Uh, you know, so once upon a time, half of it happens in the real world. And then, you know, when they go into the fairy tale world, that's where they're going to spend their money. And with Grimm where it's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cop show. And then, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes of the episode, you bring out the monster and the makeup goes boo. And, you know, but you can kind of contain that part of it. Um, and then, of course, the other part, too, is that both of those shows take their premise ridiculously seriously compared to, you know, this show. But the the odd opinion that I have is that I really think that this show influenced Bones for the better. Okay. Oh, with the bodies. Yeah, because I kind of feel like Bones in its first few seasons had really kind of, okay, so we just found a packet of Bones things. And then after this show came out and in the years since, Bones really upped its game in terms of, oh, hey, look where we found this body. Isn't that kooky? You know, and they take it really seriously, but still it's like, you know, oh, you know, hey, we, you know, we, we found a bowl of soup, you know, or we found, you know, we found this guy in a tree or, you know, yeah. it, it, it's like they, 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 they saw this show and said, oh my God, you know, what are we doing? We have to, you know, and, and admittedly, it's not like they've ever, you know, turned a body into, uh, you know, an egg, uh, you know, uh, uh, a sunny side up egg, the way that this show did in the, in the, in the lighthouse episode, but still they kind of, you know, went a little more to the extreme in terms of, you know, I, the, 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 uh, the warning for bones here in Canada, I love, which is that, um, don't uh, eat dinner while you're watching it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what they say in Canada is that, um, uh, this show contains extreme forensic material. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know, uh, Simon, you had a particular reaction to the bee stung corpse on, on Grimm season one, and which sort of reminds me of the uh, the fried corpse we get in, yeah. in, in season two here of Pushing Daisies. But uh, we unfortunately are out of time. Do you guys have any final thoughts you want to mention? I, I have to say this is probably one of the only shows that was better on rewatch rather than worse. So um, props props for that. Brian Fuller, and good luck with whatever next thing you do that isn't horrifically canceled at the outset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well I, I just watched um, Mockingbird Lane last night, and 
loved it tremendously. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I, I mean, the one thing that I really appreciate about Brian Fuller shows, um, whether it's this show or, you know, my other favorite is dead like me, um, is that they really do, um, improve upon rewatching because there's so much material and there's so many references in his films, many of them like deep Scott cut obscure, you know, like, um, I mean, sure, you're going to get a Jaws reference, but you're also going to get references to films that people have never seen. Um, and it's kind of a joy to rediscover those when you have an opportunity to really, you know, study the show. It is a show that really benefits from going back and really looking closely at it. Um, and, you know, in an age when that's what a lot of people end up doing, um, it's really a show that I think a lot of people would be, um, you know, it would, would be interested to discover uh, on, on DVD. Absolutely. If you haven't seen Pushing Daisies, uh, check it out. Like, like Simon said, watch the pilot. That will tell you if you want to watch more. And uh, hopefully you give the show a shot because, like we've all said, it, there's not another show that's quite like it. And uh, it is a lot of fun. So, uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming in. Where can our listeners find you online? Well, I, I Twitter intermittently under uh, Yakwo, which is not spelled the way it sounds, but L-L-A-K-O-R. Um, I'm the co-host on the Masterpiece podcast, which is also on Sound On Sight. And I um, I write stuff on Sound On Sight, um, including, I suppose, for people who are interested in television, my the, sh the, the series that I haven't really done much of yet, but I, I sort of need to come back to, which is my um, obsessive compulsive procedural um, episodes, which try to sort of take procedural uh, shows and kind of put them in an historical context. Uh, and of course, I, I run the Uncuts Film Festival, which is for uh, great short films by the world's best young filmmakers. So if you'd like to see things like that, you could come to youngcuts.com. If you are a young filmmaker, then, you know, send me an email to mike at youngcuts.com and, you know, we'd love to see your stuff. Absolutely. And uh, thank you again, Mike, uh, so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm gonna, this week, we're going to change things up. I'm going to send us out with uh, a little bit of Kristen Chenoweth singing Eternal Flame. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Won't you rise? Give me your hand, darling. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Do you feel the same? Or am I only dreaming? Is this burning? An eternal flame? Say my name. It's Chuck. It's, it's Olive? No, it's Chuck. I don't know where she is. Do you mind if I go look for her? No, I don't mind. Sorry to leave you with a mess. I'm used to the mess. Sun shines through the rain a whole life. So lonely, and then you come and ease the pain. I don't want to lose this feeling. Say my name. Olive. Huh? Congratulations, partner. Congratulations to you too, partner. Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? Do you feel the 